0: Happy birthday, Vertical Church. Oh, come on. Happy birthday, Vertical Church. (laughs) Pastoring you the last four years has been the highlight of my life. And I just want to say to you guys, I love you. Not generically, I love you. And I love pastoring you. And five is going to look great on you. Well, because I believe in Jesus, I believe the Bible. And because I believe the Bible, I believe in the devil and the demonic. And this may seem like a strange way to start a sermon, but the devil does not want you to hear this message this morning. Spiritual warfare before sermons is common, but the amount of spiritual warfare that has been taking place in this church over the last week in my family, even in my own life, has been emboldening. And so why do the principalities and powers of darkness not want you to hear this message? Because this message is going to be solely on Christ and Christ crucified. So often a church birthday party, church anniversary, is really a church looking in the mirror singing How Great Thou Art. And we're not doing that. As long as I get the privilege to be a pastor here on our birthday every year, we are going to focus solely on and celebrate nothing else than Jesus, the one who planted this church, the one who's growing this church, and the one to whom this church belongs, And so let me just ask a really frank question. Are you bored with him? Are you bored with Jesus? Most of us wouldn't say it quite that bluntly, but let me ask the same question in a softer way How's your prayer life going? How are your times in the word going? The reality is, most of us feel spiritually dry this morning. Translation, we're bored with Jesus. For most of us, what has happened to Jesus is what happened with driving. Do you guys remember how fun driving was? Do you remember the first time you got to drive all by yourself? It was like windows down, music on, I am free. Was that a stop sign? Right? It was a blast. And now it's like, how far is it? 20 minutes? Ugh. What happened to driving? Familiarity happened. When we experience a glory over and over, the human heart grows bored with that glory. New clothes are fun for three or four wears, and then they're boring. The new update on your phone is fun for three or four minutes, and then it's boring. And Jesus is amazing and life-changing for a few months, maybe a few years, and then our hearts grow bored with him. And yet what sets Jesus apart from driving or phones or clothes or anything else is that only his glory is infinite. There will never be a day, not even in heaven, when you will see all of his glory and experience it over and over because his glory and his beauty and his majesty by definition are ever increasing. So if you are feeling bored with Jesus this morning, and it's okay to admit that. I have been feeling bored with Jesus lately. What you don't need is a sermon on five steps to becoming less distracted or three ways to reinvigorate your relationship with God the greatest thing you and I need today is Hebrews twelve two to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of your faith, to take a slower, deeper look at Jesus with fresh eyes. And so that's what we're going to do in Revelation chapter 1. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation Chapter 1. This is the message that I preached uh, the very first Sunday in this building, but 75% of you weren't here. And if you were, you, like me, need to be reminded of these living lines. Revelation, if you're wondering, is the last book of the Bible. So go to the last book of the Bible, and the first five words tell us what this book is about. Revelation 1.1 says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ." The book of Revelation is not primarily revealing to us what the end of the world will be like. It's primarily revealing to us what Jesus Christ is like. And while I, had, I wish I have uh, time to delve deep into verses 1 through 3, we're going to spend all of our time beginning down in verse 4. Revelation 1, verse 4, if you're there, say there. All right. John. John was Jesus's best friend on earth. He's referred to six different times as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The Roman emperor Domitian commanded that John be boiled to death in a pot of oil. Side note, oil boils at three times the heat of water. And eyewitnesses say that when they threw John into the boiling oil, he continued to preach from the pot. And so they pulled him out and they forced him to drink poison, but the poison had no effect on John either. And that so freaked Rome out that they exiled him to an island called Patmos. It's where he's writing this. Feel feel this. John, now an old man, exiled to a lonely island, and he's thinking about his best friend. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... We don't read past these words. Grace to you and peace from God. Anybody in need of grace this morning? Raise your hand if you need grace. How about peace? Anybody need peace this morning? All right, then you're in the right place because it's gonna come from, see it in the text, from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a Greek construction of God's personal name, Yahweh. Among other things, Yahweh emphasizes God's eternality, So John says, grace and peace are going to flow to us from God the Father, now see it in the text, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Biblically, the number seven signifies perfection and completion and holiness. So grace and peace are going to flow to us through God the Father and through the perfect, complete, Holy Spirit. God is saying to us on our fourth birthday that we are going to receive grace and peace. It's being offered to us through God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, and now what we're going to spend all of our time on, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Today, the triune God wants to reveal or re-reveal Jesus Christ by drawing our attention to three things Jesus is and three things Jesus has done. And the first thing God wants us to know is that Jesus is the faithful witness. What does that mean? Well, the imagery here is of a courtroom. So what does a faithful witness in a courtroom do? A faithful witness accurately and always reveals the truth. When God says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, he's saying Jesus is the only one who accurately and always reveals the truth to us. Jesus himself claimed in John 14, six, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Or in John 18, 37, Jesus says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. This means Jesus alone defines all reality and what he thinks about something or what he says about something is how it actually is. You know, most of us in this room aren't asking, do I believe in Jesus? But rather, do I believe Jesus? Are his words true? And more than ever, we live in an era of fake news, right? CNN, Fox News, the last years in America have been empirical evidence that no one tells the whole truth. Everyone spins. Everyone pivots. Everyone is biased. No one tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, except the faithful witness. Question, what would it look like if truth became a person and walked on planet Earth? For 33 years, answer, exactly like Jesus. And maybe for you, this is where the rub is. You love Jesus, but you struggle with some of the things he says. And listen, if he is who he said he is, then then we must embrace every word because he didn't just claim to speak truth, he claimed to be truth. So you can't accept Jesus and at the same time reject something he has said. As C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He never intended to. You See, you guys, all Christianity stands or falls on if Jesus ever said a single untruth or even a half-truth. Because he claimed to be truth in skin. And if that claim falls, it all falls. And I just think it's more than interesting that John, Jesus' best friend, after living with Jesus for three years, after seeing him die, resurrect, and ascend, and then having studied the scriptures and experienced the Spirit for decades— the first thing that comes to John's mind when he thinks of Jesus is, he's the faithful witness. He was telling us the truth about everything. But not only does the faithful witness reveal truth to us, implicit in this title means that he also affirms truth to God the Father. Romans 8.34 says, Jesus intercedes for you, which is, again, courtroom imagery. So just picture this with me. This is how your judgment day is going to go if you are in Christ. One day you will stand before God, the righteous drudge, and someone will wheel in the record of all the sins you ever committed, and it's going to be quite a list. And then someone will wheel in all the sins of omission, that is, all the righteous things you failed to do, and that's going to be a longer list. And you will stand before his holiness exposed. You will tremble uncontrollably and be terrified by his righteous holiness. And then the judge will smile and say, I hear there's a witness. Let me call them to the stand, and Jesus will stand up and say, Judge, I saw them repent. I saw them place their trust in me. You know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in me, and by faith alone, he is in me. By faith alone, she is in me. They are free. Court adjourned. And then maybe they're going to high-five and they're gonna come and hug you and celebrate you and shout and carry you off into the place that Jesus has been preparing for you for the last 2,000 years. And here's the point. The only reason the judge will listen to Jesus is because he's the faithful witness. The only reason the judge will listen to the intercession of him who's declaring you innocent is because he is, in fact, the faithful witness. That is so good. And it gets so much better. Look at verse five. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. What is the next title, Vertical Church? The firstborn of the dead. King Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? Sounds like a, like a bad zombie movie, doesn't it? Firstborn of the dead, part three. If I ever fulfill my lifelong dream of starting a metal band, that's our name. We're going to be Firstborn of the dead. It's going to be epic. What does it mean? Okay, it doesn't mean Jesus was the first person raised from the dead. Who can shout out someone who was raised from the dead before Jesus? Okay, we got Lazarus. Who else? That widow's son at Nain. Jairus' daughter, exactly. Jesus was not the first person raised from the dead. It also doesn't mean that Jesus uh, was the first person ever born. Cults will knock on your door and use this passage to say, Jesus is special because he was the first person ever born, meaning he's not co-eternal, meaning he's not God. That's heresy, and it's simply a misunderstanding of the word. Firstborn doesn't mean first numerically, but first in supremacy, the word firstborn is prototokos, proto, first, right, prototype. And Tatakos meaning, this is so epic, rule, rank, and ownership. The, the phrase firstborn of the dead literally means King Jesus has first or supreme rule, rank, and ownership over all the dead and over death itself. Guys, it's time that we blow up the notion that Jesus only speaks softly and loves his enemies and sits cross legged in green pastures and pets baby lammies. Jesus is gentle and lowly, but verse 5 says like how you own your cell phone, like how you own the pants you're wearing, Jesus owns death. For everyone else, it's the opposite. Doesn't matter how much money or power you have, death owns you. Even the most powerful people Julius Caesar, dead. Constantine, dead. Alexander the Great, Alexander the Dead. Lincoln, dead. Rockefeller's dead. Einstein's dead. And one day, Tom Brady has to die. (laughs) Now, I think he's going to make it 150 but tv 12 is going to be TV dead. <laughs> Taylor Swift one day has to die. Nobody say amen to that, okay? Yeah. One day LeBron has to die. Ye has to die. He doesn't think so. Biden has to die. Trump has to die. You have to die. I have to die. Not a single exception. Everyone has to die. Is this a safe place for me to confess something? Okay. I played... I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I played football in high school, and you guys, I was, I was pretty bad. I was 45 pounds heavier than I am now, 220, almost pure muscle, and I played punter. You know, in football, you're supposed to be agile and, ho- and hostile and mobile, and, and I was just kind of fragile. And it, it took me a while to run a mile. And so I was a below-average football player, but listen, I was an above-average trash talker. I loved it. When we were three or four uh, touchdowns ahead, there's just a couple minutes left in the game, and then I'm starting yelling, of course, from the sidelines, game over, baby! Game over! We own you! And then I would motion to the fans, and I'd have them pull at their keys and say what? Start the bus!" Come on, just like it's high school. Ready? Start the bus. Start the bus. Gosh, brings me right back. (laughs) All right. Look over to verse 17. Jesus says, fear not, for I am the first and the last in the living one. Notice, he doesn't say I'm alive. If he's alive, he's going to die. He is, present tense, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. That's triumphant trash talk. That is holy swagger. Jesus is saying, game over, death. I own you. Start the bus. I have the keys of death and Hades. And you might say, dude, why are you so hyped about this? Because... When we are united to Jesus by faith, his ownership over death becomes your ownership over death. It's why we can join in with the apostles' trash talk of 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But catch this, catch this. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Guys, I know this sounds culty, but Christians never die. Second Corinthians 5, 8 says, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And so if you are in Christ, you will go from life to life, not a second in between. Because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, if you are lying on a peaceful deathbed or in a crumpled car, you can trash talk death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Like a bee, death spent its stinger on Jesus. So the sting of death is gone. Now all death has is like a little boop you know, can kind of just boop you into the arms of Jesus. Because Christ is the firstborn of the dead, Christians can say to death, get on your knees, death. I own you. You're my slave. Through Christ, I own you, and you must now take me to the place my heart has always longed to be. Christian, you just have to feel this because Jesus is the prototokos of the dead. Death has two options for you. It can leave you alone so you can go and enjoy Jesus or it can take you home so you can go and enjoy Jesus. Hey, death checkmate. With fresh eyes, just worship with me. King Jesus is the faithful witness the one who accurately and always reveals truth. And he's the firstborn of the dead, the one who owns the dead and death itself. Now look at verse 5. And what's the next title, guys? The ruler of kings on earth. The ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is the sovereign and supreme ruler, this will be a great place for an amen, over all governments and gods, powers and peoples, offices and officials. Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler of all people at all times, in all places, now and forever. Revelation 17, 14 says they will make war on the lamb, that's Jesus, and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So let's not just let this sit up in theoreticalville. Let's just feel this out. Who are the most feared and powerful world leaders today? Kim Jong-un, supreme leader of North Korea and someone who has an estimated 70,000 believers working in labor camps this very morning. Kim Jong-un will melt the moment he sees Jesus. Vladimir Putin, Russia's president who has committed countless crimes against humanity, who loves to portray himself as the embodiment of strength and fearlessness. Next time you see a picture of Putin, look at his knees. Those knees are going to buckle the moment he sees King Jesus. Xi Jinping, president of China and someone who is actively oppressing over a billion people, and has over one and a half million people in internment camps right now, Xi Jinping will beg for mountains to crush him, to hide himself from the face of Jesus. Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so you just got to know this. Your boss is going to bow. Your neighbors are going to bow. Your family members, I don't care how prideful they are, they're going to bow. You will bow. And I will bow. And we can bow willingly now and receive mercy. Or we can bow forcefully later and receive wrath. But make no mistake, every knee will bow to King Jesus. The question is, have you bowed yet? You're going to. Why not today? You know that when you bow, the Bible says, God doesn't give you a, I told you so, or a cold shoulder. Instead, it says he runs to you while you're far off and before you can utter a word, he embraces you and throws a party over your repentance. When we sing this next worship song, I just want to invite all of us to bow freshly to King Jesus. So who is Jesus? He is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead, and he is the ruler of kings on earth. Now we could we could call it there go home, because who Jesus is alone is eternally enough to satisfy our souls. But God the Father and the Holy Spirit want to show us now three things Jesus has done. Verse 5, the ruler of kings on earth. Now watch this. This is just too much. To him who loves us. What has Jesus done? Jesus loves us. And I realize this feels like old news, but just listen now with fresh ears because God wants to reawaken the beauty of his love. Not only was I not a good football player, growing up I could barely read. I was in special ed for a while and I hated reading. I hated grammar until I started reading the Bible because grammar in the Bible changes your life. Grammar in the Bible changes your eternal life. Notice the grammar of verse 5. It doesn't say, to him who loved us. Frankly, I don't care if he loved me in the past. Does he love me now? Because I've sinned since then. You and I have present tense sin. And Revelation 1.5 says, he has present tense love. The reason I love this passage is because it's the only place in the New Testament where the word love, agape, is in the present continuous tense. Present continuous means Jesus is loving you right now with nonstop, ongoing, never-ending, always-enduring, permanent, present tense love, even in your mess. Christian, when you feel the furthest from God, Jesus is loving you, present tense. As you're doing the thing you promised yourself to never do again, Jesus is loving you, present tense. When you feel most dirty and most broken and most unlovable, Jesus in that moment and every single moment to come will be loving you in the present tense. Verse five means King Jesus is not tired and he's not tired of you. He's not thinking, when are you finally gonna reach your spiritual potential? Instead, he's compassionate, he's patient, he's gentle and he loves you, the real you in the right now. What's that thing in your life or on your heart that is most broken? Let's not not say nicey-nice terms. Most evil. That's the very place where Jesus loves you most tenderly and compassionately and patiently and enduringly. Because if he loves you anywhere else but doesn't love you there, he doesn't really love you. But if he loves you everywhere, especially there, then he's a savior. Then he's a redeemer. Guys, Jesus' love for you will never run out. Never grow cold. Not an hour from now, not next month, not next year, 70 trillion ages from now, Jesus will still be loving you with the same ever-present, ever-continuing love. And what did that love cause Christ to do? It's right here in the text. To him who loves us and has freed. What tense is that in? From our sins by his blood. I've preached this wrongly in the past. I've said in the past, how can Jesus love us who are sinners? He loves us because he freed us from our sins. That's wrong. He has freed us from our sins because he loves us. He didn't clean you up so he could love you. He loved you and thereby cleaned you up. He loved you, the sinful you, the unrehabilitated you, the real you. He loved you first for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans 5.18, God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Revelation 1.5 says, because of this radical, radiant, red hot, present tense love, Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. Past tense. This verse says your freedom has already occurred. You might think, but I still sin. How how can verse five talk about my sin in the past tense? Well, let me give you three Ps. We talk about them a lot here of how Jesus has freed us from our sins. First, penalty. Penalty. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, just receive this with fresh wonder. You will never, ever, 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 not even for a moment, be punished for any sins you have committed, are committing, or still yet commit. Because of this, you will never get what you deserve. Psalm 103, verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. How is that possible? Because, verse 5, has freed us from our sins, right here, by his blood. Guys, his blood is the key. His blood is the atonement. It's the miraculous sacrifice that transfers all of your sins onto the soul of Christ and all of Christ's righteousness onto the soul of repenting you. By his blood, you have been set free. If you will believe, if you believe your only hope of standing righteous before God is Jesus' blood, then the verdict has already been read over your life. Today and forever, you are freed, past tense, from your sins by his blood. But not only are we who are in Christ Jesus freed from the penalty of sin, we are also free from the power of sin. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So his blood doesn't just bring you to heaven. His blood breaks the chains that keep you in bondage to sin progressively, progressively, Link by link by link. It's called sanctification, and this is so radical. It means you can look at, the, at your favorite sin and say no. Now, we're a Roman seven people, so we will continue to fall and fail, and for every again of sin, there will be a greater again of mercy. But what Satan doesn't want you to know is that Jesus has destroyed the power of your favorite sin over you. So you can actually say, no. We can, who are in Christ, can actually look at lust and say, no. Jesus destroyed your power over me on the cross. I'm not going down that road again. I've been down there a thousand times, and it's a dead end. No. You can look at anger and say, no, not again. I will speak peace and kindness, anger. Jesus broke your bondage over me on the cross. I'm not going to be bullied by you any longer. You can look at gluttony and say, Jesus broke my bondage to yet another binge on the cross, and he is here in his spirit right now, ready to out-satisfy you. Guys, this is the simplest, yet nobody believes this. It's the simplest, yet most radical and life-changing truth. You actually don't have to say yes to your favorite sin. Now, if you do, you might lose felt intimacy with God. You might lose the trust of your spouse You might lose the respect of your children, but you will never lose your salvation. You will never be punished for your sins. Revelation 1.5 means all who are trusting in Jesus' blood are freed from the penalty of sin now, the power of sin now, and very soon we will be freed from the the presence of sin. We call this glorification. And don't you just ache for this? One of the ways you know you're a true Christian is, if there was a button that you could push to never sin again, would you push it? The unregenerate unbeliever will not part with their sin. But if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, then you would hop on any plane and travel to any place To be free from the presence of that which you hate, your sin. Guys, just imagine what it's going to be like to never sin again. To never love stuff over the Savior again. To never have to fight a lustful thought again again to never have to battle with depression again or feel a split second of anger and discouragement and fear again. Just imagine what it will be like to enjoy Jesus with a new body on a new earth under a new heaven with no sin. Because of this verse, you won't have to imagine it much longer. Soon, a lot sooner than you think you will be in the presence of God to forever enjoy and experience his presence. You will have been freed from your sins by his blood. And I don't know how this is possible, but it still gets better. Look at verse six. And, I love the word and in the Bible, and made us a kingdom Priest to his God and Father. Not only does the faithful witness love us with always present, ever continuing love, not only has the firstborn of the dead freed us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and soon the presence of sin, but verse 6 says, The ruler of kings on earth has made us a kingdom. And the kingdom of what? Do you see it in the text? kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, if you were a priest, it meant you were given the highest relational privilege to God. The priests were in charge of worshiping God. They offered the sacrifices. They interceded for the people. But do you remember the highest privilege of the priest? The high priest got to go into the holy of holies, the the very personal presence of Yahweh, God. One day a year, Yom Kippur, in Minnesota we say Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest would enter into the holy presence of God. Some scholars believe they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle in case God struck him dead, they could somehow get him out. It was a terrifying thing to enter the presence of a holy God. And I can't read this verse without thinking of this picture. One of my favorite pictures is of President Kennedy clapping as Caroline and John Jr. play around him. As you can see, they're in the Oval Office, arguably the most powerful place in the entire world. In that office is where the most powerful man makes the most powerful decisions for the most powerful country on earth. The room has secret service everywhere, bulletproof walls and windows, and not even the highest Washington officials are allowed even close to the Oval Office. If you ever had the privilege to enter that room, you'd be asked to dress nice and stand up straight and get straight to the point because the president is a very busy man. You can't dance in the Oval Office. You can't just waltz in there and play in the Oval Office. You can't go and act like a child in the Oval Office. Unless you're his child. If you're his child, then you can walk in there anytime. And you can dance, and you can play, and you can be fully you because he's not just the president, he's also dad. And I mean, just look at Kennedy, smiling, clapping, rejoicing. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He will quiet you by his love. Today and in year five of this church, you can enter the presence of Yahweh God, the God of the universe, because Jesus loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests. You can enter in and be fully you You can dance, you can sing, you can rejoice because he's not only God, he's also dad. So how do we respond to this? See how John does at the end of verse six. He writes, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen as John is writing these verses, he's so overcome with joy and worship that he stops writing and begins worshiping. He puts down his pen and he picks up praise. Every one of us is writing a story, trying to write a story with our life. Collectively, we're trying to write a story for this church, but today, on our fourth birthday, like John, Let's stop writing for a minute and worship. Let's put down the pen and pick up praise. What the devil and the demons don't want you to know this morning is that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. And he really does love us with present, continual love. And he really has freed us from our sins by his blood, past tense. And now he invites us to enter God's presence as those who have been given the highest relational privilege to God. So to Jesus be glory and dominion